Good evening and welcome to Ideas. I'm Lister Sinclair with the fourth programme in a six-part series by David Cayley called Beyond Institutions. The series is about our society's dependence on large institutions. It looks at the ways in which these institutions can injure social solidarity and at the potential contribution to social welfare of the communities which exist beyond institutions. Tonight, we present two separate items on this theme. We'll examine an experiment in closing institutions that took place in Massachusetts in the early 70s. Dr. Jerome Miller then headed juvenile corrections there, and he had concluded that his efforts to improve the state's ten reform schools were futile. The staff had been there forever, and I think they were waiting me out. Uh, they could tolerate my craziness around uh, reforms within the system, but it was very clear that uh, when a new governor came in or I left, it would, it would go right back to what it was. So we just decided at one point to go for broke and, and just close the places. Dr. Miller's story makes up the second half of our hour. In the first half, we'll introduce you to the distinguished sociologist Peter Berger, and explore his proposal for social services without bureaucracy. Beyond Institutions, Part 4, by David Cayley. Society is often spoken of as if it had only two important dimensions, individuals on the one hand and formal institutions on the other. What this map of social space leaves out is everything in between, the families, neighbors, and friends, the clubs and voluntary associations, the local businesses. Sociologist Peter Berger and Lutheran pastor Richard Newhouse refer to these intermediate realities as mediating structures, and in 1977 they published a book on the subject called To Empower People, The Role of Mediating Structures in Public Policy. It argued that modernization had created a historically unprecedented split between public and private life. They saw public life as dominated by what they called megastructures, institutions too vast and bureaucratic to hold personal meaning or command personal loyalty, while private life had receded into purely private significance. Berger and Newhouse claimed, therefore, that the way to conserve meaning and reduce alienation would be to reinforce those structures that mediate between the private and public spheres, structures whose public function, they said, liberal political theory had generally overlooked, structures like church congregations or housing co-ops. One way to accomplish this strengthening, they went on, would be to put entitlements to services directly into the hands of citizens. Citizens could then use these entitlements to support or create mediating structures, rather than being forced to patronize state monopolies. Peter Berger has been one of the most influential sociologists of his generation. Since 1985, he has directed the Institute for the Study of Economic Culture, which he founded, at Boston University. I called on him there in June of 1993, and we talked about what his 1977 book had called the new paradigm in social welfare. From the beginnings of the modern welfare state, which takes us into the mid-19th century in Europe, 
Bismarck, I suppose, being the original inventor of the whole thing, is that uh, society, through its political organs, identifies a collective need, and then government, using tax money, steps in and creates various institutions to meet that need. Obvious example, the uh, alleged need is for universal education, so government sets up a school system, and these kids go to school and get this alleged service through a government agency, which is the public school. Now, the new paradigm means that while one fully acknowledges two basic assumptions, namely that at least some uh, human collective needs should be met by governmental action, and that tax money should be used to do that, in other words, we do not question that. But what we do question is that in order to meet that need, institutions have to be run by government. That is the fundamental shift, if you like, the paradigm shift. And instead, uh, tax monies are channeled directly to clients who then <coughs> have choices <coughs> between competing institutions, uh, which need not be, in fact, we ideally would not be uh, run by government. The, I suppose, central metaphor of this, which is a little more than a metaphor because, in fact, it has been tried in various areas, is the voucher. The original idea came out of education, but it's applicable to different areas of the modern welfare state. Idea being, instead of tax money going to the school, each child has an entitlement to a certain amount of money per annum for education at different levels. This could be actually in the, f in the form of a physical voucher given to the parent. And then the parent has the choice to use that voucher in a wide range of schools. That would be the nature of the shift, which is applicable probably not to all, but to a good many uh, social services. What is the resistance to this idea? Well, the resistance, of course, is enormous from the professional organizations that now administer social services. I mean, the notion of educational vouchers, for example, in the United States has been fiercely fought by the National Education Association and the Teachers Union. And you can see why. I mean, it would greatly undermine their power. Uh, professional organizations, first of all, like to have a monopoly, uh, which the public school provides, at least for poor parents, wealthier parents of course, can escape it by sending their kids to private school and paying for it. Uh, they like the monopoly, and they like to be able to negotiate uh, across the board with one other institution. It's much more difficult if you have a pluralistic situation in which parents, heaven forbid, have a lot of power, and, uh, of course, the unions don't like that. Also, professionals generally don't like to be accountable, and uh, the new paradigm you want to use that term, uh, suggests competition, and competition means accountability, and no self-respecting professional wants to be accountable to the alleged beneficiaries of his services. Accountability, in Peter Berger's view, comes from choice, and under his proposal, choice would be extended to all citizens. As things stand now, it belongs only to those wealthy enough to bypass public monopolies a point driven home to Peter Berger by an experience he had while writing his book on the subject. At the time, my children were quite young. We lived in the city of New York, 
where no sane person who can afford it will send his children to a public school. So of course they went to private schools. And my older son was in a very good school uh, in Brooklyn where we lived, Brooklyn Heights. And um, he had too much homework. He came home, he had about three, four hours homework. He was quite small at the time. And we thought that was too much, so I called the principal and said, look, I think my son is getting too much homework. Uh, can you do something about it? I said, yes, sir, I'm sure we can. And he talked to the teachers, and next week he had less homework. Now, why did this uh, principal respond to me in this way? Very clear, because behind my suggestion was a threat. If you don't do what I want to do, I'll take my kid out, and you won't get that amount of tuition. Well, that gives me, as a middle-income, middle-class person, uh, a power which the poor person doesn't have, who is helplessly exposed to the monopoly of the public school. What the paradigm intended is to give, to spread that power around a bit. And uh, if you like, the value behind it is that individual parental choice in terms of the education of one's children should be spread around. It should not be simply limited to people with a certain amount of income. Peter Berger and Richard Newhouse's book on mediating structures grew out of a larger research project undertaken with the support of the American Enterprise Institute. The project investigated the possibility of delivering social services through non-professional, non-bureaucratic channels in five different areas of which education was one. The others were health, crime prevention, welfare, and housing. The idea here would be, again, very similar. The, the traditional idea was poor people can't afford housing, so the government builds houses for them. They go in there and the government collects rent, usually local government. That has turned out to be a disaster, at least in the United States. Perhaps not surprisingly, when people don't own something, they are not very careful about it. The new paradigm idea would be you give people a voucher by which they purchase housing. Uh, and ideally purchase it in the sense of owning or owning after a period of time their apartment or their little house. So the government would not build houses. The government would help the individual, usually individual family, to purchase their own housing. How was your proposal received? It was received very, f very friendly fashion uh, uh, across the political spectrum. But I think it was systematically misunderstood. On the left, it was misunderstood precisely in a communitarian way. For example, we got uh, very enthusiastic responses, I remember, from people who were close to Saul Alinsky, if you remember. Mm. Alinsky, sort of community organizer, uh, leftish type of thing, march on City Hall. They thought the rhetoric was their rhetoric. Uh, as soon as some of these people realized that what we were really talking about was a market in social services, they became much less enthusiastic because market is a red flag for them. Or rather the opposite of a red flag, it's, it's an irritant to them, yeah. Uh, yeah. On the right, I would say the misunderstanding was even more interesting. Uh, namely, suddenly, uh, I won't mention names here because some of these people are, are friends of mine, suddenly some other people who were right of center, as I was, uh, picked up the notion of mediating structures, and lo and behold, the corporation appeared as a mediating structure, which was the last thing in the world that we had in mind. Call the, say, General Motors 
or IBM, a mediating structure, totally confuses the issue. It's precisely what we call the mega structure, one of those huge structures. So on the right, the only thing that was not a mediating structure, it turns out, was the state. And that, again, was a misunderstanding. Peter Berger's idea has lacked a political home ever since. It was briefly picked up by domestic policy advisors to George Bush, and they invited Peter Berger to Washington to discuss it, but in the end, nothing came of it. The Clinton administration, in Berger's view, is even less likely to be interested. What in Germany was called a long march through the institutions in the U.S. has reached the White House. If anything characterizes Mr. and Mrs. Clinton is they are children of the 60s. They are members of what some people have called a new class. And all the instincts of this group are opposed to what we were talking about. Uh, their instincts are profoundly statist. Uh, there is a... Uh, in the case of these people, an amazing arrogance in terms of that they know the answers, they are going to solve all these problems from Washington. And that, I'm sure, first of all, is not going to work. It's going to create various disasters, but it's going to increase the political alienation because huge numbers of people with great justification will feel they've been deceived. Now, uh, what will happen beyond that is very difficult to predict, but... Um, I don't see anybody really picking this up. And uh, I think if someone did, it would be a politically very potent set of ideas. Not only in the United States, also elsewhere, because the basic social developments in Western societies are very similar. It's uh, disillusion with professionalism, suspicion of government. These are not just American phenomena. They are throughout the Western world. Newhouse and Berger's paradigm is, as yet, part of no political program. But it does, as Berger notes, address a widespread disillusionment. And it does have affinities with the gradual shift in political thinking evident in many parts of the world in the last generation, a shift which goes beyond the specific question of social services which they took up in their book. This shift is evident, Peter Berger says, in the new prominence of the old term, civil society. Um, civil society, as far as I know, was invented by the English Enlightenment. Uh, and sudden, I, I read about this as a student. I haven't heard the term in decades. Suddenly, it comes out of Eastern Europe. And it's very funny that we have a reemergence of John Locke speaking with a Polish accent. Now, I think it's very clear why this emerged in Eastern Europe particularly in Poland, where you had a strong intellectual opposition to, to the regime, uh, civil society meant all those institutions that were not the state. Uh, and in the totalitarian situation, that was a very powerful idea. Church, voluntary grouping, civic so association, these forums, underground universities, all of these were to be part of civil society. So now the term civil society has again become very popular, not only in Europe, but you hear it in the United States, in, in, in uh, Latin America, uh, in South Africa, uh, and other places. And that's healthy. And it, uh, it, it shows a new understanding, perhaps the collapse of communism has uh, helped this, that a society, if it is to be viable, 
and plausible to people cannot simply be organized politically, that there are all these other groups, groupings of people uh, that uh, are necessary to make the society viable. Now, that's not quite the same as the idea of mediating structures, but it's in the same corner. It's related. Uh, it doesn't necessarily relate to social services, but it means the freedom of people to organize their lives as they choose um, apart from the state and even against the state. The idea of realizing public purposes through mediating structures implies that the public good is plural rather than singular. It allows what Berger and Newhouse call a tension between worlds of meaning. We have inherited from the Enlightenment, they say, certain geometrical habits of thought, and this liking for abstract symmetries may blind us to particular, limited, local goods. This habit of mind inclines us to prefer a unitary state based on what Rousseau called a general will, a state which delivers universal programs and defends universal rights but the communities which compose the state, certainly the Canadian state, are increasingly diverse and even contradictory in their views. Peter Berger's proposal would allow these differences to be valued and expressed within certain broad limits. If you had a voucher system in education, one decision which certainly would have to be made politically is what is the range of schools where the vouchers could be employed. Now, I'm sure there would be provisions for certain standards. I mean, you couldn't use the voucher, let's say, in, a, in an elementary school that didn't teach English grammar or didn't teach arithmetic. So there have to be certain educational goals that the school would have to have. But also, I think you'd have certain negative things. I mean, you couldn't, let us say, you couldn't use the voucher in a school that discriminates on the basis of race. Or you couldn't use the voucher for a school that teaches children to be pickpockets, okay? So there'd be limits of that sort. But within those limits, you could have an enormous range of, if you will, pluralistic values that the parents could choose. Um, not only religion, but also other things. I mean, suppose uh, a group of uh, Ukrainian immigrants uh, want to have a school where Ukrainian history, Ukrainian language, occupies one half the curriculum. Well, one might feel that this is not very reasonable in the United States or Canada, the children who <laughs> learn half the, half the time about nothing but Ukrainian things are at a disadvantage when they graduate. But I think we have to accept that. I mean, if parents want to do that, they should have the right, and then maybe we can help the children afterwards to learn some non-Ukrainian things. So, uh, yeah, I, I agree with you. It is a pluralistic notion. And it is a respect for people's uh, choices. There's also a profound suspicion of professionals here. Uh, the notion that uh, professionals know better, uh, which is sometimes the case, but more often is not the case. What was the basis of that for you? Oh, experience, I think. Uh, having dealt with, and maybe being a professional myself, I mean, you, uh, an understanding of how phony much of the alleged expertise is, and especially in the area of social services. I mean, when you get to, let us say, a decision to have open heart surgery or not, although I'm profoundly suspicious of doctors, I still think that some 
a sort of physician's committee is more to be trusted than than a committee of the patient's uncles, all right? But when it comes to things like education, social work, uh, housing, how a neighborhood should look, what the professionals have to say, when it goes beyond the purely technical, tends to be very doubtful. Peter Berger's proposal envisions a possible strengthening of particular communities, as in the example of the Ukrainian school. And yet, interestingly, Berger has no liking for political movements now marching under the banner of community. He says, in fact, that current political inflections of the term make him suspicious. The way in which the word community is used today, especially in the United States, to some extent in Britain, I don't know about Canada, uh, I have a very negative reaction to it because uh, you have this whole communitarian rhetoric which is going on now, which in a way is, is a, 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 an attempt to be on the left in the wake of leftism. Uh, how can I still be on the left when socialism has gone? So community tends to be a new kind of leftist word. And when I hear the word community, I always suspect that someone is trying to take away one of my liberties. I'm not sure which one, but that usually comes out very clearly. When Clinton right now talks about community, I know he's after my pocketbook. Uh, when other people talk about community, they're after something else I like. Peter Berger regards populist forms of communitarianism as a kind of displaced leftism. In the academic variants of the idea, he perceives what he and Newhouse years ago called a romantic urge to revoke modernity. The celebrated book Habits of the Heart by Robert Bella and his colleagues, he says, is a perfect case in point. If you look at Bella, whom I know well, both personally and in terms of his work, uh, behind his, uh, his writings, particularly The Habits of the Heart, which was a huge success, is a basic assumption which I think is false. And that is the assumption that uh, American society suffers from excessive individualism. I don't think that's the case at all. American society is enormously rich in its associational and communal creations. American society suffers from an alienation between these creations, and on the one hand the state, and on the other hand the market. And that's a very different proposition. And um, all this bewailing of bemoaning of hyper-individualism and selfishness, and I don't think those are real problems at all uh, in this society. I mean, there are selfish people, of course. There are people who are bereft of all ties with other human beings. There are very few. I don't think that's a very serious problem at all. Then why are they blind? Why has it become quite commonplace to observe, as they do, that these things have gone. What is hiding them? Oh, I mean, there's always a nostalgia for idealized communities of the past. Look, I'll give you a concrete example, somebody I know very well. And like Bella, I know Bella, I like Bella. He's a very nice guy, very bright fellow. Uh, this other person I'm going to mention, um, uh, Barber, uh, ben Benjamin Barber, who was a colleague of mine, a political scientist at Rutgers, uh, he has been very much involved in this. He wrote this book called Strong Democracy. Um, the idea that uh, everyone, every citizen must be constantly involved in political life. To me, a nightmarish idea. And I, I remember Barber's original book. 
And very often an individual's first book tells you a lot about uh, uh, their later books. Uh, uh, Barber's first book was a very nice book, a beautiful study of the canton of Graubünden or Grison in Switzerland, which is one of those real archaic cantons where once a year all the citizens gather on the main square and vote on everything. And that, uh, he called it uh, the decline of direct democracy or something like this. I forget the exact title of the book. And he bemoaned the fact that this kind of total citizen participation, even in Switzerland, even in Graubünden, was on the decline, and instead you had sort of modern representative democracy. Well, um, what's behind this? It's a notion of the, which you get on the right and on the left, of citizenship as a full-time job. In other words, the problem with us is we don't care enough. We should be constantly involved in the affairs of society. Well, to be constantly involved in affairs of society is mean, it means to have no personal life. It means to be totally politicized. That's why I said it's a nightmarish idea. And I think there is some of this, and there's a nostalgia here for what was supposed to be a true polity. You find it on a very high intellectual level on the right with the Straussians, um, followers of Leo Strauss, whose ideal is Greek democracy. Uh, Athenian democracy, all the citizens constantly get together and discuss everything and vote and whatnot. Terrible idea. And I think one of the wonderful things about modern democracy is that the citizen can decide not to involve himself in all these things, but instead, for example, to devote himself fanatically to the education of his children and let other people decide about foreign policy. I see nothing wrong with this. This is precisely the liberation of modernity, and in the communitarian movement, at least the way it hits me, uh, there is a, um, an attempt to escape from this modern freedom into some sort of what in German we call stable-like warmth. I mean, you all huddle together in the, uh, behind the cows and feel safe. How would you characterize your attitude towards modernity? Positive. <laughs> yeah, positive. Look, I mean, uh, there are no free lunches in history. There are always trade-offs. I'm not, I don't believe in the myth of progress. I don't think modernity is the culmination of human history. There are lots of things in the modern world which I deplore. One of them is a widespread loss of transcendence and some other things as well. Uh, but, and there old Hegel was right, although he was wrong on almost everything else, uh, one of the main fruits of modernity has been an enormous expansion of individual freedom. And that, I think, is a good, it's a genuine discovery about what until then were more obscured aspects of the human condition. And since I cherish that freedom, uh, my attitude to modernity must be positive. And that's why I'm suspicious of all these people who want to escape from individualism to community. Peter Berger speaks for what might be called a chastened modernity. His proposal to realize public purposes through mediating structures preserves liberty by putting power in the hands of individuals. 
but it would also potentially foster a rich diversity of communal forms by allowing individuals to use their power to strengthen a chosen community rather than the state. It's an idea whose time may yet come. Berger's proposal for the reorganization of social services focuses on reducing the role of the state. In the balance of tonight's program, we turn to another variation on the theme of institutions and alternatives, deinstitutionalization. The story begins in 1969 when Jerry Miller became Commissioner of Youth for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. At the time, the state had approximately a thousand juvenile offenders in custody in its ten correctional institutions. Four years later, when Miller left the state, only 40 kids remained in secure settings. The rest were in community-based programs. He has described how this happened in a remarkable book called Last One Over the Wall, published in 1990 by the Ohio State University Press. It started, he relates, almost by accident, it was the summer of 1969, and after 11 years as a psychiatric social worker in the Air Force, he was still in his first year as a professor of sociology at Ohio State. That little personnel information bulletin passed my desk uh, from the National Association of Social Workers listing jobs around the country, and I was kind of paging through it, and I saw this looking for a new commissioner of youth services in, in, in Massachusetts for a newly formed department. And I kind of joked about it and showed it to uh, John Bailing, who was a sociologist uh, next door to me. And he, he was a very radical sociologist at the time, the advisor to the students for democratic society and what have you. And, and he said, well, you ought to put your money where your mouth is, so to speak. Uh, why don't you apply for it? Because you're always around here uh, talking about <laughs> what needs to be done. So I sent in a resume really in response to that and almost as a joke. I really wasn't very serious about it at all. And then, I got, then they called and asked me to come out for an interview. In this interview, Miller made no effort to be politic, since he didn't consider himself a serious candidate for the job. What he hadn't initially realized was that the search committee were serious about changing as well as reorganizing a department that had recently been embarrassed by scandal. In the more severe of its institutions, boys were still strapped, spread-eagled to bed frames or confined naked in concrete isolation cells, which were called at the Shirley Industrial School tombs. Within a month of his interview, Miller had been offered the job. As soon as he took over, he eliminated practices like isolation and bed restraint and began introducing moderate reforms, like allowing kids to wear their own clothes instead of standard institutional issue. Many of the staff resented these changes, and Miller soon found himself with a full-blown revolt on his hands. We had one strike, for example, in which staff, as they left, threw, threw the keys to the place down the hallway and told the kids to do whatever they wanted. Uh, we had staff at the detention center give a kid's crowbars and then leave and then come back uh, an hour later and say, are you still here? 
uh, that sort of a thing. So that these were the kind of subtle uh, things that happened. Flew the flag upside down at the administration building at the largest institution as a sign of uh, distress from central office, which was my office. Posted escape maps on the bulletin board saying, on the bottom of it, saying, free copies given here. All of this kind of encouragement uh, to to act out and cause problems. And some kids went with it. At one point, we pulled the institution together by really ignoring the staff. At Shirley Industrial School, when uh, things were uh, horrendous, they were, they were escaping or running away in groups of 10 and 12 and passing each other in the woods at night and what have you. And at, at one point, it was impossible to trust the staff at all. And I, I brought in one man I trusted who ran a, a very decent institution in Worcester, Paul Leahy. And uh, he came in, and what he did is he identified about a dozen kids that he trusted, and they ran the place with him. And he had them going around the place and checking this and checking that and letting them know what's happening in this cottage or that cottage. And basically, we had to rely on the more uh, mature youngsters among us to, to hold the place together during that very difficult period. This staff revolt continued through most of Miller's first two years. At one point, Department of Youth Services employees rallied on the steps of the legislature, carrying signs and banners saying things like, Miller lets delinquents run free, training schools in chaos, and even Miller condones free sex. None of this prevented Jerry Miller from trying to create a humane and flexible administration, but he eventually realized that none of his reforms had a chance of outlasting him unless he could effect more permanent changes. Over the long haul, I was an outsider, as you will always be in New England uh, when you come in, particularly from the Midwest. And the staff had been there forever. They were civil service protected, although very few had ever seen a civil service exam. It was primarily a political patronage department. And I think they were waiting me out. Uh, they could tolerate my craziness around uh, reforms within the system. But it was very clear that uh, when a new governor came in or I left, it would, it would go right back to what it was. So we just decided at one point to go for broke and, and just close the places. I didn't really tell the governor, but my naivete really served me in good stead. Because had I known then what I know now, I probably would have gone over and told him. And then probably we wouldn't have closed anything. Because then immediately, not that he wouldn't have, he was a very good man, Frank Sargent, but he had a lot of hangers-on political types around him. And they would have said, well, Governor, you better not do this. You better sound that out, or you better pass this by such and such a committee. And it would have been down the tubes very quickly. So we decided to close them, and, and, and we did over three, three and a half year period, we closed 10 institutions, moved all the kids, uh, well, not all. I think, as I recall, all but 40 into community-based programs. The 40 were kids with us on very, very serious crimes of violence, and we set up a small 10, 12-bed units uh, for them. And uh, there was not that much to do about it. It, it went really rather smoothly. We had more... Uh, controversy during the time we were trying to reform the institutions internally. It really was to me a demonstration of a comment Margaret Mead had made back at that time. I'd met Margaret Mead a couple times when I was in the service uh, working uh, in Topeka, Kansas where we were associated with the Menninger Foundation and, and Carl Menninger brought her over and I spent a day or two as her chauffeur and driving her around. But one of the things that she had said at that meeting 
was that massive change would be much simpler than incremental change. I wish Bill Clinton would learn this, incidentally, <laughs> that it's much easier to do, to do the big thing than to try to chip away at it, given communications media, et cetera, et cetera. And, that, and she's precisely right. Trying to chip away at it, trying to do it the way you learn by the book in, in the school of social work or policy planning would guarantee it uh, failure. You know, I, it's very frustrating to me now when I watch states or jurisdictions talk about deinstitutionalization uh, and watch them try to implement it because it almost inevitably it fails and you know exactly why it's failing, and, uh, but uh, they won't hear you in terms of what needs to be done. How do you mean? needs to be done quickly, needs to be done well. You have to plan it extremely well, but keep the plan to yourself. <laughs> and when you do it, do it. To talk about planning deinstitutionalization, say, of large mental hospitals or prisons, as though it were a professional or a policy issue in and of itself, is nonsense. It's really a political issue. These places are bastions of, of local patronage. They, are, they present political power within the state legislatures. And so you would no sooner sit down and discuss this with everybody in every detail before you move than you would if you were plotting a, 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 as a government minister or as a prime minister. I'm planning to do X, yeah. I'm, I'm planning to do X, Y, Z. Now let's all meet with the opposition and decide how we best accomplish it. You plan it very, very well, and then you execute it, and then you take the consequences. If you don't do it well, then you ought to be thrown out. But in fact, you can do well by it, and that's what we did. It's why the mental health deinstitutionalization in this country was such a, a massive failure, because it was done that other way. Everyone and their brother was involved at every level in the state, and what you basically saw is all the patients dumped into the streets, all the money staying on the hospital grounds. In fact, in New York State, for example, and in Pennsylvania, where I was for a couple of years and know very well, as the number of patients went down tenfold. Uh, uh, the number of employees working on the grounds of state hospitals went up. There were more money going into the state institutions as they became uh, depopulated than there was while they were populated. And very little of that money followed the patients to the community. It had nothing to do with care or uh, public policy. It had to do with the fact that you uh, weren't going to question the jobs that were av available to the local community, the contracts for services, for roofing, for plumbing, for upkeep, for groundskeeping. If you look at St. Elizabeth's Hospital here, the federal hospital in the District of Columbia, mental hospital, it's now costing, I believe, somewhere in the range of 125000 per patient per year on the grounds. Yet when they dump those patients into the community, that most of them live on an SSI check or Social Security check and will generally be less than 3000 a year. Now, if the rule of thumb for deinstitutionalization, which we followed in Massachusetts and which, if it were followed, would make deinstitutionalization greatly successful, is that every dollar attached to a person in an institution should follow them to the community at least for the length of time they would have been in the institution. Not lifetime, just for the length of time they would have been in the institution. Well, in this country now, the average kid in a reform school is $60,000 per year per kid. Well, my gosh, what you couldn't do with 60000 per year per kid in the community for him with his family. If you're worried about security, hire someone, put them on his arm around the clock. You could do so many things, but uh, it's, it's foreign thinking to suggest that. In Massachusetts, Jerry Miller, as he said, was able to get the money out with the kids. 
he got the consent of the governor's office to reassign money from personnel to programs as people resigned or retired. Turnover was then over 20% a year. And he was able to arrange for the transfer of staff to community programs without loss of their state benefits. Short-term grants from the federal government made up shortfalls during the transition. When I arrived there, about 90% of our budget, or maybe closer to 95% of our budget, was in institutions, in running institutions and staffing them. By the time I left, about 75% of our budget was in the community programs. We still had about 25% in our central office and in, in, in the state facilities. But basically, we were able to turn that around. If you can get the money out and the kids with them, then it's very hard to get it back. Uh, so that whereas when I came there, the state employees that ran the institutions were the vested interest in the legislature to keep things as they were, my successors would find it very hard to move back to institutions because they would have to take the money away from uh, Catholic charities or Jewish welfare or child welfare agencies in the community. So we built a counter lobby, if you will, uh, with our community-based programs. The transition to community-based programs took a couple of years to complete. And as there had been at every step, there was resistance. Many of the institutions, for example, lingered on even after the kids had gone. Most of the staff stayed on the grounds of the empty institution. We had no authority to transfer anyone or order them off. For how long? In that case, it went on for a number of months. Uh, they, and, uh, they, they expected that those kids would return. They expected it would all fall flat on its face and those kids would be in further trouble. It never happened. The kids really did quite well. And eventually they saw the light because I, I never was one to say, you know, move or we're going to fire you or anything like that. So uh, eventually I said, well, wouldn't you like to get retrained to go work with these kids in some other kind of setting? And eventually that's what happened. Some of the older folks who had been there for years just took early retirement and left. But that was a nice commentary on the politics of these places and of corrections and to a large extent of mental health is that these places don't exist for services. They exist to provide jobs and other things. And, and uh, during that time that we ran totally empty institutions, that is empty of kids but full of staff, uh, there wasn't a peep from the legislature. No one said a word. I wasn't about to say anything, but I thought for sure someone down there would give a speech. What are you doing running this large institution where staff come to work every day and there's no one there? Uh, no one said a word. Uh, so I think that's, that tells you what it was all about. As long as I didn't touch those jobs, we were in fine shape. And my successor, uh, Joe Levy, I think made the tactical error of going over to the governor and saying, you know, we have about 700 people we don't need. Uh, and uh, when he said that, uh, all hell broke loose in the legislature about the deinstitutionalization. About They had hearings about why these kids are loose in the streets and whatever. It all had to do with the fact that he was going to touch those institutional jobs. That's what it had to do with. But no one would dare say that. So, uh, so all the law and order rhetoric came behind the patronage. Once the institutions were closed, accommodating all the kids all at once in community-based programs inevitably presented certain problems and required some improvisation. But Miller says that he approached this challenge in a fairly relaxed spirit because of the basic premise from which he operated. The premise was that what we were doing to these kids in the institutions was worse than doing nothing. So that I didn't view it as a great risk, personally, 
I, I very honestly would have, I could have opened the doors and let everybody go home and we would have had a little less crime than if they were subjected to our treatment for a couple of years, at least violent crime. Now, politically, that's untenable, and you're obviously going to have some incidents. There are some very volatile and difficult uh, young people. But we had, w we had one piece of research, very, very little research around that department uh, in years past, but there was one piece I came across at, at our largest institution that showed the longer the kid was with us, the more likely they were to come back. So the more of our treatment they were getting, the worse they got. That was my premise. So I didn't view it as a fantastic risk if a few fell between the slots or if there was not someone hovering over them all the time. And uh, so that I was perhaps a bit loose about that, but by gosh, we didn't have any major incidents and it went very well. Now, clearly those kids convicted of major crimes of violence, one would have to be very careful with, and we were very careful, and we, as I say, we had about 40 such kids, and we, they didn't go into the community. We tried to uh, bring in people to run small, small units for them, and we contracted with groups like the Robert Kennedy Action Corps and all to, to run programs for them. But uh, the rest, uh, we had to come up with options. We initially started with group homes. I think that was a mistake in retrospect. It, although the group homes were better than the institutions, they were they were not that good. And it turned out the very best programs we came up with were the programs that we backed into from crises. Uh, we ran out of placements for the kids. And then I uh, started saying to staff, well, see what you can come up with. Uh, try to find someone that'll take a kid, or can you take them, or can you? We're not gonna go back to the institution. See what you can come up with. And they began recruiting people and paying them just to keep one kid out of trouble, kind of on the run. And that turned out to be the very best program, the one that we had planned the least and, and backed into, uh, where you hired someone, you paid them a full salary, their job was to keep one, two, maybe three kids at most out of trouble. Sometimes um, showing up four or five times a day, having the possibility of taking the kid into their own home if things were falling apart in the kid's home. Uh, having that kind of a flexibility in terms of backup for residential care. And uh, that turned out to be the very best kind of program. From the very beginning of Miller's efforts at change, the Massachusetts experiment was monitored by researchers from Harvard University's Center for Criminal Justice. When Miller moved to close the institutions, the focus of this research effort shifted to the community-based programs. The first results from this study in 1975 showed no overall decline in recidivism or repeat offenses, but marked declines in regions where the community programs Miller considered the best were in place. Later studies found lower rates of recidivism throughout the state, as well as a remarkable decline in the percentage of adult prisoners who were alumni of juvenile corrections. For those kids where we were able to design the program to fit the kid, there were dramatic differences, and the Harvard study showed that, that uh, where, where it was well implemented and there, there was someone on each kid's case and they worked hard with them, that you could have a really a fairly dramatic effect on the uh, possibility of, of the kid getting in further trouble. 
but you had to sustain that. And it's something that uh, I don't think I appreciated as much at, at that time as I do now, because I work now with, uh, with young and older uh, adolescent, older uh, sex offenders and kids involved in violence. And it's very clear that with a lot of the more serious, uh, kids involved in the more serious offenses, uh, to use a medical analogy, you have to deal with it almost as you would a chronic issue rather than an acute or trauma, trauma issue. And that doesn't mean you have to be involved in long-term treatment, but you have to have put in place or found or identified a support system within the community or the family or relatives. And the kid has to know enough when to reach out and get a little help before things deteriorate, kind of like you would with someone with uh, diabetes or uh, epilepsy. Learn to recognize the 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 triggers or the things when things are deteriorating or when your blood sugar is off and you better get in and do something about it. It's very very similar uh, with uh, and and uh, it isn't that one needs particular professional care at such times. It's just that you need to reach out. You need to have something available and there really needs to be some caring person. I don't know how else to say it. A person to follow this strand to be there. It can't be a series of agencies or doors or places to go to for help. You really need a person. Someone you could call at night, someone you could talk to when you had a problem, uh, and just that kind of stability to shepherd one through the, the maze of, of social service and, and other agencies. And uh, I think the, the programs that we set in place in Massachusetts that even approximated that were the programs that worked the best. And uh, that's what I, I, if I were doing it again, I would not have RFP'd, what they call a request for proposal for like a group home or this kind of treatment program. I would have RFP'd kids. I would have said, we have Johnny Smith who needs help with his education. He needs to live with someone who provides this, this, this. Who would like to come and offer this? Who can offer help for this person and here's how we see and he sees his needs or she sees her needs. And I think that could be well done. I mean, there, there, the information systems and computerization and all would allow for that. You could, in fact, do that and then tailor the programs, tailor the, 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 the supervision and all to the, to the vicissitudes of each kid. Jerry Miller left Massachusetts in 1973 to take over the Department of Children and Family Services in Illinois. He had successfully closed the institutions and established durable and effective alternatives. But he knew nonetheless that his days in Massachusetts were numbered because of the political enemies he had made in the process. If you want to change a system overnight, he once remarked, you'd better be prepared to leave in the morning. The changes, however, lasted, and Massachusetts today still locks up the fewest teenagers of any state in the United States. I still hear from a number of them. It's very strange, like uh, within the last uh, couple of weeks, I got a call from a guy who's now, I guess, in his late 30s. Uh, he said, uh, is this Dr. Miller? I said, yeah. He said, this is Angus. You remember me? And uh, I remember the name because it's an unusual name. And uh, it was a kid that we'd that had run away from somewhere, and I hired him in central office, and he kind of hung around there, and we got it, and he, he finally worked his way out. and. Uh, He's a policeman now, <laughs> out in the Midwest, and he really called just to see what's happening and how things are going kind of thing, and uh, wondered if I'd send him a note about what we do. And I'll hear from kids like that uh, every few months, someone will pop up somewhere, uh, and uh, 
they'll, they'll want to say things went well with them. Today, Jerry Miller runs the National Center on Institutions and Alternatives in Alexandria, Virginia. There, he ruefully contemplates the condition of an American criminal justice system that has completely ignored the successful outcome of his Massachusetts experiment. His views on that system make up the next program in this series. On Ideas tonight, the fourth program of Beyond Institutions by David Cayley. The series continues tomorrow night when Jerome Miller will discuss the ominous changes that he believes have occurred in American criminal justice in recent years. Technical production was by Lon Tulk, production assistance by Gail Brownell and Liz Nodge. A printed transcript of tonight's program is available or of the entire six-part series. To order your copy now, call Radio Works at this toll-free number, 1-800-363-1530. That's 1-800-363-1530. And we welcome your comments. Write to us at Ideas, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W1E6. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht, and I'm Lister Sinclair. Stay tuned to CBC Radio for Between the Covers. Tonight, part three of The Priest's Boy by Clive Doucette. The story is set in the Cape Breton town of St. Joseph de la Mer during the Depression. That's on Between the Covers, following the 10 o'clock news. Mm -hmm.